I'm Sean Lukasik, and you're listening to the Paisanos Podcast. One of my goals with this podcast is to get people thinking about how the internet has changed nearly everything around us. One example that's front and center these days is the film and television industry, so I'm excited to have screenwriter David Ebeltoft joining me for this conversation. David's work has been described as suspenseful, emotionally driven, and decidedly chilling, phrases that may also be used to describe the current situation in which screenwriters and actors find themselves. His films have earned enthusiastic reviews from The New York Times, Variety, and The Village Voice. His most recent project, Blood for Dust, starring Scoot McNary and Kit Harrington, premiered at the 2023 Tribeca Film Festival. You can learn more about his work at davidebeltoft.com or by finding him on Instagram and Facebook. David joins the Paisanos podcast to talk about the evolution of streaming and how we arrived at this crossroads between Hollywood execs and those in the industry just trying to make a living. I learned a lot during this conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. Thank you for listening, and please be sure to share this episode with all of your friends and Paisanos. Here's David Ebeltoft. David Ebeltoft, welcome to the Paisanos podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, let's start just by kind of jumping right into uh, where we're currently, where we currently stand with the Writers and Actors Guild. Um, I, I understand you are are currently on strike yourself. I am on strike. I'm on strike. And I think the Writers Guild, which is uh, the WGA is what I'll probably use uh, for terminology. So that's the Writers Guild of America. Boy, I think we're into maybe a day 86 of our strike. Mm-hmm. And then we were joined by a sister guild, the Screen Actors Guild, um, also known as SAG-AFTRA. I think they're about 10 or 12 days in. Um And yeah, we're on strike just like a lot of other unions are on strike, Uh, like UPS recently. Luckily, they got a great um, a great outcome for the workers. But the writers and the actors and actresses are on strike because it is tough to make a living wage (laughs) uh, in this day and age, not just for um, everyday Americans or people globally, but it's really hard to make a living wage even in the often miss, um, how can I say it? I'm a writer, so I want to edit myself, but (laughs) the, uh, the often like mistermed dreamlike, extremely expensive, everybody has a pool in their backyard studio system, Mm -hmm. which is Hollywood, but most of Hollywood, man, it's just a bunch of workers. You know, 99% of us are sort of for a better term, lack of a better term, sort of blue collar workers. Um, the one percent, yeah. the ones that you and I know about, Sean, the Brad Pitts and the Steven Spielbergs and the Julia Roberts and you know Channing Tatum's and all these wonderful individuals, they're that one percent that make tons and tons of money. But for the rest of us, we have to really sort of fight for our paycheck 
and both of our guilds are on strike because, man, that paycheck just keeps on dwindling, unfortunately. Yeah. And all the articles like to remind us the last time both unions were on strike at the same time, Marilyn Monroe was was acting and in and, and movies. Um, and it's, I think, a, a pretty strong indication that we're at a big turning point um, in terms of film and television and and the industry as a whole. Um, And so I want to start by kind of maybe backing up a little bit and understanding how we got here, how the industry has changed changed over the past, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, um, you know, from from the just simply the big screen to the small screen to cable and all the way to streaming and, and where we're at today. Yeah. And yeah, we will, we'll rewind everybody. We'll flash back to the way we used to watch movies is drastically different than the way we watch now. And those 15, 20 years that you're talking about, so there's so much to unpack, right? You mentioned that transition from more of a theatrical going audience to really us being way more at home. We have the rise of streaming, which we're now in that sort of golden age of streaming where there's only almost too many streamers. Um, we have the complete decimation of VHS and DVD rentals. Physical mm-hmm. media is gone. Um, it's really being pushed, you know, buying a Blu-ray or buying a DVD is almost like buying a vinyl. Now it's very, mm-hmm. very, very much of a niche market. Um, we have internet fandom. We have connectivity between audience and studios and audience and stars more than we ever had before. Unfortunately, that also arises, uh, brings up a lot of toxic fandom, which is unfortunate. Um, we also have the unfortunately short time spans and attention spans of yeah. audience members um, yeah. and how our attention span is being spread out over multiple platforms where before we used to just have the theater. We used to just have that sort of one big church uh, that palace to see everything we could see. Um, so we have so much going on in the past of 15, 20 years. But I think the, the thing that I'd really like to discuss with you today, uh, and it really sort of ties into what you were sort of talking about going from the big screen to the small screen, is really how we as audience members are viewing stuff drastically different and hence paying for it drastically differently. And yeah. then that trickles down to working writers like myself, working directors, actors, and actresses. So do you, Sean, remember a film in your youth that you used to love to watch over and over? Absolutely. And and if I did, you know, it was on VHS and I remember the timestamps of some of my favorite scenes so that I could <laughs> fast forward or rewind to get there quickly. Um, but yeah, of course. Yeah. And mine, I remember the specific title and I'm glad that you mentioned rewatching it on VHS all the time is that my brother and I made our parents rent the never ending story. I was going to say the never ending story, David, that, that is crazy. That's the example I was going to use. And, uh, one of the the most recent, uh, DVDs that I received as a gift uh, because it's been years now since was, uh, my mom buying that for me on DVD to make sure that I had an updated copy of it. So that's really funny. That's amazing. Our, our brains are in sync. Well, first of all, bless your mother because she bought physical media, which is 
really right. rare nowadays, right? But so I'm so happy that you're on the same uh, watching page as not only myself, but also my brother. So let's take Never Ending Story as an example on how audiences really used to digest that. So first of all, you and I, we would go to the theater, right? Let's just say your mom and your dad and, and siblings go. So like my family was a family of four. So family mm-hmm. of four, we go to the theater, we see that. Let's sort of say that's 40 bucks. We're just going to start tallying up the numbers here. And then we're going to break down how much those numbers just diminished over the past 20 years. So we have $40 in the theater. Then you and I, we rent the living heck out of that VHS. And we remember Mm -hmm. where poor Atreyu, you know, loses the horse and all these horrible, horrible things. The nothing, which is the most metaphysical. uh, (laughs) I mean, what was that was teaching us as kids is still we're still trying to process. Um, Right. That's right. So that's like two bucks a night. Right. But you and I, man, we needed that for at least five five weekends in a row. Right. So that's, that's 10 bucks. So we're now up to 50. Well, maybe your mother also really knew that you loved it. So she purchased it on VHS for you. So that was probably 20, 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. So right now we're up to about $80, but then it would get to broadcast television, which, you know, it would run on HBO or Showtime at first, those pay per view channels in a way, then it would come to what you and I probably watched it on over and over TBS, USA Network, um, AC or AMC, you know, Turner Classic Movies. So while it's not a one to one dollar correlation, you and I racked up as a family, one viewership family, about mm-hmm. $90 on one film. That's the traditional model. And that's how studios made their money. And then that's how it actually trickled down to us as writers. When streaming came along, that was just decimated. I mean, Mm -hmm. streaming for all of its benefits as a viewer, because I'm not anti-streaming. I'm a huge, uh, I consume content a lot. But streaming really just took a huge hand grenade to that whole dollar to dollar system. Because when streaming came along, they're like, yo, we're going to give you guys $10 a month, or you guys are going to give us $10 a month. And we're going to let you view a thousand films for as many times as you want. So streaming basically took what one American family would spend $90 on one film. That same American Mm -hmm. family now spends $10 for a thousand films. And how that affects us as writers and why the Writers Guild is specifically one of the big reasons we're on strike is that when the hand grenade was thrown and that dollar to dollar conversion went away, we lost what's called residuals. Mm-hmm. And residuals really are the they are sort of the lifeblood of the creative film industry. They are sort of a piece of the pie that writers, actors, actresses and directors get of the profits of a certain film. And the reason why we get that is because we're the creative forces behind it. You can't have a great film without a great script. You can't have a great film without a great director. Can't have a great Mm -hmm. film without great actors and actresses and so on. So for the most part, writers used to make about 1%, give or take. I mean, it's not that simple of a conversion, but for our talk, it's about 1% of that profit. So those $90 that you and I spent on, well, really our parents spent, let's be honest, those $90 that our parents spent on never ending story, that Mm -hmm. writer would get about a buck off of what one family viewing it. So the never ending story was huge. And even if we said 
60,000 American families sort of did the exact same thing as ours, that's about 60,000 bucks that would trickle down to the writer. And why that's extremely important is that the film industry is so competitive and it's really one of the most expensive art forms out there, Uh, you know, and I'm not, you know, poo-pooing other art forms at all, but it Mm -hmm. takes a lot of capital to create a film. And the reason why we as writers and we as directors, actors, actresses need those residuals is because it's really rare to sell films constantly or be involved in films constantly. So on a good year, I would sell one film on a, but really it's every two or three years. So how residuals works is they would bridge the gap between us selling films and making money. Mm-hmm. I like to equate it as to sort of a waiter or a waitress. A waiter or a waitress gets base pay and then they get tips. Writers work the same way. We get a base pay, which is fine. It's not astronomically amazing like mm-hmm. what people think, you know, Brad Pitt makes and whatnot. We get a <laughs> good working salary. And then the residuals help us feed our family, feed ourselves, you know, roof over our heads during those two or three years that we don't make any money. So when streaming came along and decimated that $90 down to $10 to view a thousand films, it completely decimated residuals. Hmm. And it's a huge reason why not only the writers are on strike, but the actors uh, and actresses are on strike as well. SAG after is on strike because we now are having, most of us are struggling to really make a great living not even great, a decent living off of things that are ridiculously successful because streamers will not pay any residuals because they believe and they keep all of their numbers very, very tight, but they don't share in the success of a television series or of a film like the studios used to share in the success Mm -hmm. back in the day with films like The NeverEnding Story. That's really interesting. And so, um, you know, the the big player that in streaming that we often hear about is Netflix and even their own model went from the physical copies that you'd receive in the mail to um, to that monthly streaming model. Um, and yeah, they're notorious for not sharing that data. And and these are things that I'm just realizing as you're talking are, are connected to to some of the issues. Um, and your work is on a variety of different platforms right now, from free viewings on places like YouTube or Vimeo to um, you know Hulu or uh, Amazon Prime. And uh, do they all kind of work other than the free models? Do they all work the same? Are, are they all pretty similar to Netflix or is Netflix kind of like the, the, the big bad wolf that we think of it as when, when these conversations happen, are they sort of leading the way? You know, I think you're right. I think they are. I do believe. And again, as a consumer, as an audience member, I watch Netflix like crazy. You know, I'm not anti-streaming. I'm not anti-Netflix or Amazon. Mm-hmm. I think the industry shifted so quickly. And I don't think the industry expected our viewership to shift as quickly with it. 
right? The mm-hmm. when streaming came about, and I mean Netflix just cut their DVD mail service. They actually kept it going until I think this year, because mm-hmm. some holdouts were still very very interested in that. But but for the most part, once they started streaming, we adapted so fast because we were able to consume content without a schedule. We didn't have to worry about a broadcast schedule. We didn't have to go down to the video store. I mean, all the things that we now take for granted, I can't believe how fast I shifted as well. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, getting my first smart TV with uh, with the ability to do Netflix. I think it was in the late 2009s, 10s. It was pretty early mm-hmm. on. And within six months, I remember I didn't go to the video store anymore. I barely went out. I mean, even myself, somebody who really does love to support cinema in all of its ways and varieties, I adapted very quickly, so quickly that yeah. I had to step back and say, whoa, 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 wait, don't forget that we there's good process here and there's great reasons to go to the theater and there's yeah. great reasons to, you know, possibly peruse this mom pop video store and look at the cover and then read the back cover. Simple, simple things. But I do yeah. think you're right that the big, the big bad wolves are Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Hulu and Disney for sure. But, you know, Hulu and Disney, they sort of came a little bit. Hulu was first in the game alongside Netflix and Amazon. Disney came a little bit later, which is sort of during that time, which is called the streaming wars, which we're still sort of in, where all of a sudden everybody wanted to become a streamer. Because how Mm -hmm. it used to work, and I'm sure you remember, is it used to work like, all of the studios would license their films to Netflix. So you could watch it Disney on Netflix very easily. But yeah. then all these companies started to realize, oh my God, we're not making as much money as we can out of this. Let's start our own streamer. And now I'm sure you and most of the folks listening believe there's way too many streamers, which yeah. I agree with. There's so much out there. And I think what we're going to see going forward over the next few years is they're going to start to shrink. They're going to start to combine. They're going to start to really become more back to those big five, which would be Netflix, Mm -hmm. Amazon, um, Hulu, Disney. They're going to sort of merge in the next few months here. Uh, Now it's Max, used to be HBO Max, Mm -hmm. Peacock, some of the really big ones. Now, the other platforms you're talking about, uh, which in the industry we call them AVOD, which is advertising video on demand. And those Mm -hmm. are the the free platforms that every 20 minutes you and I have to watch an ad, which really is how we used to watch films on television anyway. Right. Those streaming platforms are actually quite beneficial to a lot of films because you see a one-to-one dollar correlation. Each time you watch a film, if you want to watch The NeverEnding Story, uh, on one of these free platforms like Tubi or Vudu, Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. are two of the big ones. The Each time that's watched, those ads are played and then the films get a percentage of those ads. So yeah. it's a little bit actually better correlation to making money because there's advertising money to then split up. And if your film's not viewed, if, you don't make it. Yeah, I wondered about that because I'm thinking, you know, there are still different ways that I pay for content um, and on sites like Tubi or even YouTube, you, I, I'm not paying, but I know that I have to sit through an ad or two or more if it's a longer feature. Um, and those go to the creators. I mean, that ad revenue, you know, a a big chunk of it goes to the creators. Um, and, uh, when, 
when it's ad free and a subscription based like Netflix, um, I'm, I'm understanding that that you know, there's not as much, but I've also rented and purchased movies through iTunes, um, where mm-hmm. you pay, you know, one price for either a television series or a specific movie. And that price is anywhere from eight to $15 or so for the one piece of content. Does that affect the way you get paid once it, once whether it's residuals or um, right up front, um, do those different payment models affect, uh, you know, trickle down to the writers and actors? They, uh, they should, <laughs> but sure. unfortunately, uh, the rental system, and thank you for renting, because that's a big issue, is a lot of people nowadays, and I'm sure you've heard people in your day-to-day life say, oh, don't worry, I'll wait till it comes on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Just like we were talking about how that viewership really, really shifted from theater to VHS to, you know, purchase to broadcast. Now it's really shifted to, okay, I'm excited about it and I'll see it in the theater or I'll wait for it for my monthly subscription price. And a lot mm-hmm. of people skip that middle step that you and I both do. I love to rent films because I don't yeah. want to wait all the time. But for the most part, those film rentals would trickle down to residuals. Um, so when you as a consumer uh, spend that three ninety nine of, of a film that's been out for a year or sometimes nineteen ninety nine mm-hmm. if it was just released or is still in theater, yeah. that's a dollar to dollar conversion that is still covered in the WGA contracts, which is great because the yeah. last time the WGA uh, you know, sort of negotiated these contracts, that pay, that rental fee was still part of it. Uh, and the residuals are calculated off of that. So each time you do rent, that should trickle down to the writer. But the stuff that almost all of us wait for, unfortunately, Netflix and those monthly Amazon Prime, those monthly things, those there's no trickling down. And that's where I don't know the percentage. I'm just going to say probably 75% plus wait to do it, you know, to, to watch a film during that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And now... Uh, so here we are, this, you know, we, we just described how we, how we got here. Um, and, uh, you know, for people who are not familiar with your work specifically, um, I, I thought this was a good place to sort of interject, uh, maybe how your brain works a little bit. I don't know how deep we want to, <laughs> we want to go into that conversation, uh, because you, you, uh, you put some pretty suspenseful, dramatic, uh, it often terrifying work out there. Um, and I think it's terrifying because it sort of, uh, preys upon the fear that we all hold inside of us or some of the images that we might see in our own nightmares, um, as opposed to totally made up science fiction, you know, out of the, uh, out of nowhere, um, which has a place too. And I know you're working on a comic series as well, but, um, so, uh, I say all that to say, in your very interesting mind, uh, what does the future look like if uh, if things work out um, as favorably as they can for for the writers um, in in this process and and coming out of it? Right. Well, thank thank you for for those kind words. I I really hope my fears aren't implanted too much in your noggin. <laughs> And that no, they, they were dissipate. already there, but you just, oh, you just good. draw just, them out every time I watch. <laughs> I hope, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. I hope they can, I hope they can dissipate with a round of golf, a, a good beer and 
don't watch Never Ending Story. Let's shift to maybe watching like Uncle Buck, that's, John Candy. That's right. Yeah. Classic comedy. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, broadly speaking, with the Writers Guild strike and the Screen Actors Guild strike, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I'm a pretty optimistic, friendly fellow. I truly get my demons and fears out on the page, which is why mm. all of my films are, yeah, they're dark and they're gritty and they're usually quite depressing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and that is a, a wonderfully therapeutic and cathartic way to write. Um, and I do love audiences. I watch a lot of those films too. I, I love yeah. that audiences sometimes don't want to be happy. They don't want to be cheery. You know, we saw during the pandemic and during COVID, we saw tons of pandemic and COVID related films being watched mm-hmm. more than the ones I thought people would watch, which is like Uncle Buck. I thought that would be binged like crazy, yeah. but no, <laughs> things like Contagion were being binged like crazy and, yeah. and tons of zombie films. So sometimes <laughs> like our escapism, we want to see how great our world is by then comparing it to something similar and we're like oh thank god at least nobody's eating our brains yet you know exactly yeah yeah but okay i i hope this situation plays out uh oh man that's a tough one i I mean i really hope that we're heard that's our biggest thing because Mm -hmm. right now we are the ones creating in and sacrificing for this medium um that we're basically asking for monetary compensation and we're asking to make sure that AI doesn't come and really uh, artificial intelligence doesn't come and completely decimate our careers. And Mm -hmm. it sort of stinks because we're not being heard by the ones that really uh, they're the ones that pay the bills. Right. And, they're the ones that are saying, hey, we rely on writers. We rely on actors and actresses. We rely on these people. You guys are familial collaborators. Um, but they're also stiff-arming us in terms of basic human uh, needs, like a living wage, and to mm-hmm. make sure that Skynet doesn't just ruin everything. So I feel like currently the strike is really about being heard and ensuring that we actually get back to the table. But the ones that need to invite us back are the studios. And unfortunately, I think that disconnect will happen probably until the fall. I think that the studios will deal with the Screen Actors Guild first because the Screen Actors Guild is very big. I think they have something like 160,000 members. And right now, actors and actresses have halted production to a complete standstill. So Mm -hmm. the studios will deal with them first and then they'll get to the writer's guild and the writer's guild will probably have a little bit of benefit within that because they'll be able to see what the screen actor guild got in terms of their residuals and in terms of their requests. And they'll be able to sort of, um, you know, piggyback a little bit off of that. But what writers are asking for and what actors and actresses are asking for are totally different. And so, I think that even though we do have at least a few more months of this, which is unfortunate, I think Mm -hmm. what you guys as an audience will see coming out of this is you guys are going to see a lot more reality programming coming in the fall, um, which is unfortunate. Um, There are a few things that we're able to squeak by in production, but the studios actually did what they called a strike proof plan, which they've actually had in work. You know, they've had it in the, uh, in, in the cogs and in the wheels of the machine for the longest time and they unleashed Mm -hmm. it recently. So I think audience wise, we're going to see a lot more, um, reality program. And I think we're going to see a lot more, uh, sort of relicensees of classic properties. 
like the two we've yeah. already talked about today, Uncle Buck, Never Any Story. I think we're going to see a lot more just sort of regurgitation of great films that you and I have already seen, but the studios and the streamers are just going to put back up to their top to make it look mm-hmm. like they're circling back in content. I think yeah. once we get out of this, there's unfortunately going to be some writers, there's going to be some actors and actresses, there's going to be some casualties, which is unfortunate because we're already close to the 100-day mark which is almost as long as the 2007, 2008 writer's strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the longest. And it's already, it'll probably go a hundred days more. And a lot of writers just won't be able to support themselves anymore with their writing because nobody's buying and it's already ridiculously competitive to begin with. So, uh, so it's going to be extremely unfortunate that some will have to go and seek other employment. Same with Mm -hmm. actors and actresses. So I think that's going to be really sad. Um, And that's probably where my dark and gritty and depressing writer sort Mm -hmm. of comes in. But, you know, for the most part, um, the film and television industry, we will continue to rock on. We will continue to create and write great films for worldwide enjoyment. I mean, I do feel like right now we're going to have to suffer a little bit and some of the audience is going to have to suffer a little bit. Um, But I do think in the end, it will be able to hopefully reset the industry that makes sure that we should really, as a collective culture, not just within the studio system, really not only support, but also champion a lot of the creators that are at the very, very front of the process. I love cheering for Oppenheimer and Barbie and these huge names attached for it. Those two films right now, it's really great that they're doing really, really well. But Mm -hmm. there's, you know, 5,000 other films sort of, quote unquote, beneath their budget level and their marketing level that also need champion. And the creators behind that really need champion. So my, my optimism sort of says like, hey, it'd be cool if we're able to press a reset button after these strikes to sort of go back to a, a more, um, and this is very, very optimistic to me, but more utopian idea of how we view films and then how we talk about the creators, like the writers and the directors and the actors and actresses behind them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's there's some pretty not so distant uh, memories of uh, a time when we were all stuck in our homes and and just trying to watch and consume whatever we could. And at that time, some production halted as well for for totally different reasons. Um, But, you know, I, I I think every time this happens, there's, there's this sort of reminder that, uh, you know, even though, uh, I might have a guilty pleasure in watching something like love is blind, um, which there it is now it's recorded. I've, I've said it into a microphone, (laughs) but if that was the only thing that I had to watch, uh, boy, that would not be good. Um, and I think, you know, my, one of my hopes is that we, uh, collectively, um, understand the impact that this artistic medium has on our lives and how important it is, not only for distractions, but for, for opportunities for storytelling. The one example that you just shared about Barbie, for example, you know, the, the conversations that are happening around that movie are so much bigger than the movie itself, than, than the script or the actors or whatever goes into it. Um, and that's what we're losing. You know, that's what we're missing when people like you 
are not getting paid when when we're mm. when we're missing the stories that are important for having the conversations that we need to have as a society or even just around the dinner table or, or just the entertainment um, that that we have as families as friends um, it, it's there's there's a real big piece missing and um, you know, God bless the streaming industry that brought that front and center and, and gave us that opportunity to access it so much more easily, but to not bring you along, to not bring the actors along with them and with that success is, is a travesty. And I, I hate to see that this is how it needs to happen, but I'm glad that it's happening so mm -hmm. that we at least have the potential for that utopian future that you just <laughs> described. I think, yeah, thank you for those words. And I think you're totally right. The streamers, and I, and again, they're not, they're not evil. They, they do some evil things <laughs> for, the, for the most <laughs> yeah. part. They yeah. have brought, you know, what I used to have to fight for. Uh, I used to have to fight to see foreign cinema. I used to have to fight to see indie cinema. You know, I grew mm -hmm. up in a small town in the Midwest and uh, our local, college library was the oasis for any film you know that wasn't a huge blockbuster and but we had to like you know you you had to reserve these tapes way in advance so i'm i could keep on going on and on about sort of how streaming has affected us for the good but man we are having those global conversations um mm -hmm. i'm able to see amazing you know films from vietnam and you know from you know argentina that open up my eyes and open up my empathy because I'm experiencing it through the silver screen, right? Yeah. It, it is truly storytelling and the film medium is truly that amazing campfire that we would all sit around and we'd all tell these awesome stories. But now that campfire is super big and global and it's just a iPad screen or your television screen. That's what, that's yeah. the glow that's flickering on our faces right now. So, and streaming did do a great job and they still do a great job of bringing those stories to our homes and our hearts very, very easily. I think mm -hmm. where they have tripped up and where we're trying to, yeah, fight for a good paycheck. We still want to work with them. We still want to share our stories. They have hundreds and hundreds of amazing executives that also want to champion writer's stories and director's stories and actors and actresses, visions and voices. Um, but I think what happened is that they started their medium without worrying about residuals and they haven't had to worry about it until now. So yeah. if, if I was to play devil's advocate and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, 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 we can't, we can't switch the way we operate. Like this is how we operate. This is how we make money. Now you guys are asking <laughs> us to go to a system that you should have asked us to implement you know, 10 years ago, I, I can see that and I can see their struggle, but at the same time, <laughs> they can't keep yeah. shortchanging. You know, there was a great article about, um, I haven't seen the show yet. My wife watches it. The bear. Have you seen the bear yet? That oh, uh, yeah. chef yeah, I'm show? about Is halfway through the, this most recent season. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Yeah. My wife says it's amazing. And, um, you know, for, for an example, uh, because uh, I haven't gotten into television at all during this because I'm not a television writer. But, you know, most of the Writers Guild is made up of television writers. And mm -hmm. when streamers wanted to compete in those streaming wars, so many more programs are being made. So many more shows are being made. Well, that's really good for writers because we get hired more. But with more shows, that means less budget for each show. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of those amazing shows like The Bear, man, their budgets got so packed and stripped down that one of the writers was paid uh, $40,000 for a script on that show. No residuals. So he's not able to share in the success of this show that's a worldwide phenomenon, nominated yeah. for Emmys. And he got 40000 as a as a not a base, but that's the base pay, not his take home. His take home is then obviously taxes like all of us Americans or at least good Americans pay. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also within the industry system, you pay your agent and your manager, which usually equals about 20%. So I'm pretty sure that writer's take home for an extremely successful television show is 20,000 for the year. And that Jeez. I think is below poverty. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's sort of where, the streamers really need to step up and say, yo, thank you for creating the bear and for creating this amazing series. We will yeah. let you share in its success because we are definitely feeling its success as a studio. Um, it would be nice to let the writer and the actor and the actress and the director share in that as well. Yep. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, let's talk about your work a little bit for, for a moment. I, I know that you have a film in the can now premiered at, at Tribeca. Um, congratulations on that. And, and, you know, one of the pieces of good news for us as viewers and listeners is that, um, while there's a lull in, in fall and maybe early winter, uh, we'll get to see that. Um, I, I believe you said you're anticipating it'll be more widely available in January. So can you talk a little bit about uh, Blood for Dust and, and uh, what you're excited about with, with this project? Oh, you know, and I probably should have mentioned this prior, but I, due to my guild rules, I'm not allowed to talk about my films. Um, okay. It is a... I know. I, I feel bad, Sean. I should have let you know that prior. Um, but I, I'll explain the rule really fast and, and how it's also really affecting. Um, you can talk about it. So what you just said, that's great. Everybody listen to what Sean said and, uh, <laughs> and, and take note. But part of the both guilds, part of the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, uh, is that we shouldn't promote our own material during a strike because even though our promotion, especially for a writer of my stature, I'm, I'm not a big name. I'm not an industry name. Uh, but any promotion we do, we do do for a film, uh, can get a dollar for that studio. So, uh, we are restricted from doing any promotion. So I, I, although our film did premiere at Tribeca and, stereotypically I would be able to uh, do the press there and I'd be able to walk the red carpet and have pictures taken of me and, you know, all that fun stuff that doesn't happen too often. Mm -hmm. Um, When the writers went on strike, I was unable to do that. And what you're seeing right now, I think it happened with Oppenheimer um, is that they did the red carpet, but then once the screen actors guild called a strike, they all walked out of the film and it's just to sort of show solidarity and to ensure that, hey, studios, we provide more services than just our writing because studios will require writers, directors, actors, and actresses to promote a film. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. that's baked into our contracts. Like, hey, you need to do this promotion. You need to tweet about it. You need to do this about it. So when we went on strike, we we fully strike. And the reason why it's so, I, I don't, I think it's great that the Screen Actors Guild joined us because it shows how important our message as the Writers Guild is and how important these issues are. But I think 
they have way more clout in that realm. So what you're seeing in the trades right now and what might be trickling down to an everyday audience is, oh my God, uh, this huge film is going to play at this huge film festival, the Toronto International Film Festival, but the actors and actresses won't be there to promote. How's that going to affect the film? So, um, so yeah, I apologize for throwing a wrench in your, in your very kind question. Um, but that's, that's one of the things that we have to do on the strike. No. And, and I appreciate that explanation. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know that I would normally leave it in if I really stepped in it during an interview, but, no. uh, but I think that's important to, to hear. I think it's important to, to leave that in and, and for people to understand, um, that, that helps me understand, you know, that the studios are leaning on the writers and actors even after their job is done with all the promotions because you can't put a studio exec on the red carpet and expect the same kind of uh, promotion of the of the movie. That's not how it works. So, um, yeah, that really drives the point home uh, that, you know, you, the the writers the actors are helping it all along with the success and not seeing any of of the residuals along the way so that really brings yeah. it home i appreciate that and yeah 100 percent. i'm glad you asked the question and also you know we don't get paid for promotion so a lot of right. times we're required to continue on with the film in terms to help that film achieve more financial success. And a lot of times, historically, writers, directors, actors, actresses would do that because the more they promote it, the more they'll see those residuals. But guess what? (laughs) With those residuals decimated. So right now, it is sort of like a free service that's provided. And I know some of the the big guys and gals, the huge names that we know of. Yeah, I'm sure they have great things in their contract and their clauses that say, this is how much we'll do and this is how much we'll make for our promotion. But for most of us, we do it because we love it and we want people to see our films, you know? And so, um, so yeah, it is hard to pull back because, you know, as a creator, you want to talk about what you're excited about and you mm-hmm. just want genuinely, you genuinely want to have those conversations that you were talking about uh, that we should have over the dinner table. So it is, it is tough to put the old gag order on oneself yeah, <laughs> during yeah. this time, but yeah, for a good cause. No, totally. And I know one of the one of the real um, uh, contentious points that we've arrived at as uh, as a film industry um, is this conversation around artificial intelligence. And you mentioned it mm. a little bit earlier. Um, and that's certainly you know part of the reason for these negotiations is because nobody really knows or understands where artificial intelligence is going and um, you know who's to say that in the next year I can't open up chat GPT and say, uh, Hey, write a movie in the style of David Ebeltoft and, uh, and see what it spits out. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, who's to say that Netflix can't do something like that in the future either. So what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and, and how it affects your work or potentially draws from your work, um, you know, more eerily as we move forward? Yeah. And you're hitting the two big ones. Um, the effect on work and how AI draws from my work. I think, you know, my disclaimer, I'm not anti-technology and I'm not anti-AI. AI is a tool, right? And when used properly, it can really benefit many professions. Just because we have been talking about writing and because I am a writer, I rely heavily on AI to fix my grammar and my mm. misspelling. Um, yeah. 
a lot of the screenwriting programs have AI that help find gaps within our screenplay due to human error, AKA my error. So when I mm-hmm. hit the return key a few too many times, that can actually translate to uh, more dollars being spent if I don't catch that. And AI is like, yo, David, you made a mistake. <laughs> you should delete these two extra returns. Um, research, my God. AI is so pivotal in helping sift through the endless, endless amounts of the internet to make sure that I know how to poison somebody within my script properly. Um, (laughs) Don't look in my search history, please. Um, (laughs) But it's a technology that you just said you hit the the nail on the head for sure is it's moved so fast and it's developed so quickly where I think where it gets really, really, scary is when it's not used as a tool, right? When the tool becomes a threat. And mm-hmm. our whole conversation so far has really been about corporate America. I mean, Hollywood for its dreamlike stature and its palm trees and for its glitz and gra- glamour is an industry and they answer to Wall Street. So it's a massive industry that has a track record of saving money. And a lot of times, what we're seeing right now is that we see that tool, AI, just like you said, chat GPT, if you're mm-hmm. looking at it through the massive troves of Hollywood number and data crunchers, and they see an Excel spreadsheet cell that says, David, screenwriter costs, let's just say $80,000, chat mm-hmm. GPT and a few prompts costs $0, mm-hmm. that's where it can get really, really scary. And we're starting to see it a little bit within the art world, within the digital space, within animation space in particular. Um, I'm sure you see it in the marketing and media space as well. Um, I have friends that work in the graphic design business that their clients that used to say, please create a proposal, are now sending them proposals created by AI. And then they, the graph, the human graphic designer just puts polishes on it. So they're 20 hours per project there's now cut down to two hours per project because ai Mm -hmm. took large parts of the you know so that's what we're worried about within terms of of writing now ai i don't think will ever replace creativity and vision and heart and human empathy and i Mm -hmm. don't believe that it will ever get good enough to replace that but (laughs) We're talking about corporate America again, right? And I like to think about the company Hershey's, which, Sean, you and I live in the same area. We we live pretty close to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Hershey's, a chocolate company, is notorious for removing enough of their chocolate, enough of their cocoa butter from their chocolate to save a dime. (laughs) even though they're a chocolate company. So when that's the mentality that we as writers have to worry about when uh, Hershey's is saying, that's okay. We will know it's okay if we don't have to be legally called milk chocolate anymore. Mm -hmm. People will melt it in between a marshmallow roasted on a fire and two graham characters. And nobody will care if it's a bunch Mm -hmm. of chemicals or real cocoa butter, but that's the way the film industry thinks as well, unfortunately. And, and that's what we're worried about is we're worried about, you know, those machines not doing a great human (laughs) empathetic creative job. We're worried about people being like, ah, it's good enough. Let's get that script out there. Let's get into production. Most of the world won't care. So that's sort of the, the first worry worry is monetary for sure. 
And yeah. And oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go. I was going to go into the second worry, which was really that sort yeah. of training model. If uh, So you, you do want to go? No, or please. I... Yeah, yeah. Continue. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that second worry is, is what you said is, is really how AI is being trained. And I'm not the tech, tech expert, but really what I do know is that they're being trained on massive amounts of published material. Mm-hmm. Now, that published material, a lot of scripts, you know, mine are out there in the world on online. Um, a lot of times I don't put them online myself, but they just happen to get out there. But they are, I do have copyrights or the companies that hired me have the copyrights to those scripts. But AI is able to sift through copyrighted material and train itself in such a fast way that it's not like a college student reading my script for educational purposes. It's really being, you know, uh, ripped through and baked and all of the months. And sometimes let's not even talk about the years of experience that I needed to get to that point of creating a script that then took a few months. Uh, they're able to rip through that and re kick out, uh, parts of my work, parts of what I would do if you said, hey, like, let's make sure that this is a David Ebeltoff script in your prompt, then that is basically AI's a plagiarism machine in a, in a weird way. And the developers of these models, ChatGPT is the big one, they claim fair use. Hmm. I'd love to hear Paisano's podcast about fair use and what yeah. is truly fair about it and what's unfair about it. But but the, that's what really raises the alarms is that they're using so much of our published material um, and our literary material as source material. And we are not being compensated by it to then have a robot possibly kick out something that we actually did. But also, they aren't able to copyright whatever AI kicks out. So it's, it's a very, very swampy, weird world right now. Um, but the way it's being trained is off of our hard work, our sweat, our tears. And it stinks to think about that then replacing us at the same time. Yeah, so. right, right. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I'm, I'm in website design. And if there's a particular page that I don't want Google to crawl, I just throw a little snippet of code on there or in some cases even flip a switch and uh, that tells the search bots, hey, don't index this page. You would think there's something just as just as easily that could be coded into copywritten work when it comes to artificial intelligence. Like, hey, you're not allowed to crawl this page. Um, and, you know, it's amazing that we aren't there yet. Um, because I'm sure there are lots of people who thought about these things and want to say, oops, I didn't think about that, you know, later. Um, but it's, there's, there's some easy answers. There's some very complex and difficult answers. And, uh, and I, I hope, and I understand that that's what everyone is trying to sort out with these conversations and negotiations. Yeah. And that's interesting. I, and I haven't even heard of, you know, the industry taking those steps to protect that copyrighted material. Is it happening? I sure hope so. Mm-hmm. I think what happens is that just because, you know, like, um, like the Academy, the, the folks that run the Oscars, the Academy asks for every script that goes into uh, that releases in a year. They request the script from the writer for their library that is used by universities worldwide. So mm-hmm. when I have a, a film release, 
the uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences. They they email me and they're like, hey, David, can you please share us with the script? We'll upload it to our secure database. Well, that secure database is uploaded, but then it's downloaded by all these other sites that just want to make those available. So. Yeah. Those sites, I, it's going to be an interesting policing problem, uh, I think, yeah. which, as we know, the Internet has a, a lot of trouble <laughs> being policed. Oh, yeah. or, um, so even with great ideas like that, it's it's going to be interesting to see. And it's really going to be interesting to see if AI pulls an amazing line, you know, uh, Luke, you are my father. Mm-hmm. If you pull that amazing line from a script you know, George Lucas, then if that comes up in another film, is that now copyrighted? Like what is the, but it has nothing to do with, you know, Darth Vader and Star Wars and tattooing and arms being cut off and, you know, all this fun stuff with the force. If you remove all that, is it still copyrighted? Probably not. Definitely not an expert, but it's going to be really interesting over the next few years to see how this how this pans out. And I think the Writers Guild is really just trying to get ahead of it because we didn't get, even though I wasn't in the Guild at the time, we didn't get ahead of streaming and we didn't get ahead of residuals because we just didn't see it moving that fast. We didn't mm-hmm. see the internet speeds getting so fast where we could literally download and watch films in minutes. And mm-hmm. because we didn't react fast enough there, we're behind the eight ball. And I think with AI, some writers are really hoping that it's sort of like Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of these other sort of fads. And I'm, you know, I'm not offending all the other, you know, financial Bitcoin investors here, but within film, they really thought Bitcoin was going to fully finance films nowadays. That didn't yeah. pan out. Some people yeah. are really hoping for that. But I think the Guild is really just trying to get ahead of the curve so it doesn't burn us down the road if it happens. Yeah, and Godspeed to anyone who's trying to get ahead of, of technology and understand the role <laughs> yeah. it's going to play. Um, oh, my God, you're right. But but I appreciate, you know, the, the opportunity to talk with you about it. Um, as with, uh, all of the episodes of this podcast so far, this is just a a tiny little piece of, of what is happening across the internet, what's happening as a result of the internet. Um, and it's, it's been really interesting talking with you about how we got here and where we're going, um, in this little tiny snippet of time, um, while the strike is happening. And, and, uh, and so I appreciate your time. And I wish you the best of luck in terms of, you know, that utopian future that that we're both picturing. Nice. Thanks, John. It's been fun. And thanks for the kind words and support. Really appreciate it. Now, let's all go watch Uncle Buck. Never ending story. A hundred percent. Yes, I I plan on it. (laughs) Okay, good. The Paisanos Podcast is produced by Creagent Marketing. It's written and hosted by me, Sean Lukasik. You can find our show notes at paisanospodcast.com or visit our YouTube page to watch the video version. If you have guest or topic ideas, email me at sean at paisanospodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>